morning. Thank you, Todd. Luke 15. There is a, uh, the same parable that, that Todd read is given also in Matthew 18. I believe it's verses 11 to 14. And it's the same parable of a shepherd going to get sheep, a lost sheep, but the meaning is different. Thinking, how can the same thing in the, in the Gospels be something different? Because there's two ways in which a lost sheep is dealt with. In the Matthew 18 context, uh, it is basically along the lines of how, how Todd prayed for us today. And that is, as, as a brother in Christ, a Christian who has gotten himself or herself wrapped up in some heinous sin, as Christians are prone to do, uh, backsliding in their faith, and it is Jesus sending one of his own. In fact, what follows the parable in Matthew's gospel in chapter 18 is how to bring a brother or sister back to the fold, bring them to repentance. In other words, if a brother or sister in Christ, in Christ, a Christian who has backslidden and gotten, into them, gotten themselves into all kinds of sinful actions, a brother or sister in Christ is to go confront that person by themselves, confront their sin and try to bring them to repentance. And if they do, great, we celebrate. If they don't listen, then they're to take two or three others to try to bring them to repentance. And if they do, fantastic, we celebrate. If they don't, then their case goes before the church. In such a scenario, I would come up and stand here at this pulpit and say, uh, so-and-so is refusing to repent of their sinfulness. By their actions, they make not only Christ look bad, but this church, and we are, from here on out, because we love them, they are not welcome in our fellowship until such a time as they repent. That's called church discipline. And that's the Matthew 18 context. And if they never repent, then they are to be what we say, sounds harsh and cruel, but it's what Jesus told us to do, excommunicate them. They are to be treated as an unbeliever. Now, how do you treat an unbeliever? With hatred and scorn, with love and evangelism. Luke's context is different. It's not about a straying Christian. It's about people that are not Christians at all. And I'll show you. 15.1, Luke says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, near him, that is Jesus, to listen to him. Now, let me just remind you that tax collectors are the lowest form of life in the Jewish mindset. Uh, you could be a Roman tax collector, which Jews hated, or you could be a Jewish tax collector, which Jews hated twice as much. Tax collectors, um, you would assess a certain taxation on a certain district, and uh, the Romans had this district, these particular districts were bought. You would buy the district if you wanted to be the tax assessor. You would pay the certain amount of money, and you would become the tax assessor, and you would collect the taxes for that district. And that, those taxes would be paid to Rome. Whatever you made over and above that tax was yours to keep. So you could extort money all you wanted to. All Rome cared about was getting their money. Someone could be walking along a bridge, and as you as a tax assessor could stand on that bridge and say, I'm charging you 20 bucks to cross this bridge. It's for Rome. Put it in your pocket, you're done. Any tax or duty that you chose to, to put upon the, the Jewish people, or any people, was yours to put upon them. If they could not pay the taxes, and they said, well, I want to pay it, you'd give them a loan at a high exorbitant interest. 
to make your money. So tax assessors were very wealthy people. Now, if you were a Jewish tax assessor, tax collector, you weren't just assessing him, you were collecting him. You have now sold your soul to Rome. That's why they hated him double. It's bad enough that the Romans are taxing us because Jews had to pay their own regular tax in Israel. They had to pay the tax for their priesthood, had to pay the tax for their, for their people. That was it's all throughout the Old Testament. And when they had a king, they had to pay taxes to the kings. Rome comes in, and now they're not only paying to themselves, they're paying to, or to their own uh, religious establishment, they're paying to the Roman government, whom they hate. But now a Jew comes in and says, I want to collect taxes for Rome against my people. That's why they were extra hated. One of Jesus' disciples was one of these Jewish tax collectors. His name was Levi, also known as Matthew, the writer of our first gospel. God can save anyone, can't he? And he saves people that most others loathe. And so he did. So tax collectors, Jesus is telling a story, or the story is being told that tax collectors are coming to Jesus. Well, this is going to upset the religious establishment, but it's not just tax collectors as, and the sinners. They're also coming. That's everyone else. Prostitutes, drug dealers, whatever else you can come up with, with that's perverted, are these are the people that Jesus is attracting. All those large crowds we talked about last week, they're full of these people. Mary Magdalene, we know that Mary was a, a woman who was possessed by seven demons, it said. She could, could uh, attest to Jesus' grace in receiving her. Matthew, Levi, these men, these people could absolutely attest and tell everyone about the wonderful grace that Jesus gives. How about you? Many of you can do the same thing. I hope all of you can. You've looked at yourself in the mirror and you realize what a wretch you were and still are. And by God's grace, you're a child of God. And you amen it because we love it. We look around. You're looking around right now from your seat and you're going, gee whiz, Lord. That's what you're saying. You're saying, gee whiz, Lord. You save that person. You're either upset that there are some people in this room because you didn't want them here. You didn't think they should be saved. Or you're rejoicing. Which one you are, we'll, I'll determine, I'll show you which one you can determine you are here. Tax collectors and sinners, they're coming to Jesus to hear him. Verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees are the conservative religious group of the day. These are the leaders, these are the shepherds, if you will, of Israel. They are the shepherds, they're the ones that lead and teach God's people. They keep every law. If there was ever a moral person on the planet, it was the Pharisees. Pharisees kept every law. They dressed nicely. They were rabbis. The Pharisees, look at them. You bow before them. They demand that you call them certain names. The Pharisees. The scribes are the lawyers. They know the word. They transcribe the word, hence scribes. So if you're going to transcribe the word, you're going to know the word. And they're the sidekicks to the Pharisees. They walk around with their scribes. If you really think you're important, then you walk around with someone writing down everything you say. Did you get that? Write that down. It's funny, I don't see any of you writing, nor should you be. But think about that. Wouldn't that be great, you know, if you were just walking around and you had somebody, hey, did you, did you hear that joke? And the guy said, well, it really wasn't funny. Write it down anyway. Did you see that? That was brilliant. Has someone ever come up to you and, and they, they kind of grab your arm? Some people are like, they grab you. Hey, hey, did you hear what I said? And you're going, no, by design. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Did you hear that joke I said? You know, they start telling you your obligatory laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Let go of my arm. Move on. 
That's what the scribes were. That's how I want you to think of them. They began to grumble because the tax collectors and sinners are coming alongside Jesus. Grumbling. Outward grumbling. This is an audible grumble. What is he doing with these people? Why is he hanging with these people? And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you believe? By the way, they'd have said that to any of us who would dare to, to approach someone and give them the gospel. That we would dare to maybe find a prostitute and, and share the gospel. Oh, look at him. He's, he's consorting with prostitutes. Or he's consorting with that, that low-life human being over there, whoever that might be. Others might say, oh, look, he or she is talking to that person. I'll bet they're sharing the gospel with them. You might stop and pray. The Pharisees and scribes are that hoity-toity, high and mighty. Can you believe Jesus is talking to those people? These two verses, they run the entire, they, they set the tone for what's left in chapter 15. Because chapter 15 has three parables. One of which is a, is a shepherd that leaves 99 of his 100 sheep, goes out to find a lost sheep, brings it back, and there's great joy. The second parable is a woman who loses a co- one coin out of 10. She searches her house. She finds it, invites her neighbors. They celebrate. Great joy. The third parable is a man who, who has a son who goes out, and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance. And he goes out and lives a terrible living. And he comes back. And the father welcomes him, and the other son, who's obeyed all the rules, doesn't like it at all. Every one, or I say each one of these parables, each of these three parables, is illustrating what verses 1 and 2 say. Jesus leaves the 99, the woman doesn't care about the nine coins she doesn't, didn't lost, and the man doesn't care about, seemingly doesn't care about the, the boy who stays home and is faithful. We'll look at the prodigal son next week, but the first two parables we'll look at today. Keeping in mind that the people Jesus is illustrating are these scribes and Pharisees who want nothing to do with the lost coming to know, coming to understand salvation. There are certain people that other certain people don't ever want to be in heaven. One of them we meet in the Old Testament, his name is Jonah. Remember God called Jonah? Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites are going to be inhabitants of the city, the, the capital city of Assyria, the great mighty empire of Jonah's day. And the Assyrians were, were foul people, no doubt. And Jonah didn't want to go preach to them. It wasn't just because he didn't like them. He didn't want to be seen in Nineveh. He knew that God might save them, and he didn't want them saved. You ever felt like that about people? I don't want them saved. I don't want to go to heaven and see those people. But be careful. You have a demented mind if that's your mindset, as Jonah did. And God, you know the story. It took a, a long way for Jonah to go before he, he ends up there with whale slop all over him when he finally gets there the the preacher with whale junk all over him is is out there preaching and he doesn't really preach with any any power or gusto just goes through the town and does what god said repent in 40 days you're gonna die repent 40 days you're gonna die walks from one end of the city to the other just saying repent 40 days you're gonna die by the time he makes it to the other end of the city he says lord i did what you said and then he goes and camps out outside the city and he waits for the fire of heaven to fall but doesn't the grace of god falls is jonah angry Oh, yeah. Lord, is this not what I said you would do, you God full of grace and mercy, saving those people? There are many people like Jonah today. They don't want the saved to be found. That's the scribes and Pharisees. They set the tone here. 
And so because this is their attitude, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That is, he fellowships with them. How dare he do that? We would never do that. So Jesus told him a parable. Now, it's interesting that he says this parable, yet he tells three of them. So we might say it's more of a parabolic discourse. Three illustrations associated with the parable. And he says in verse 4, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, a man that has got ninety-nine or a hundred sheep is a very wealthy shepherd. Uh, the Pharisees would understand and relate to shepherds. They weren't necessarily uh, big shepherd fans. Shepherds were dirty and filthy, and Pharisees wouldn't have hung around with them. They're kind of the low form of life to the Pharisees who were high and mighty and hoity-toity. That's got to be a song. Someone had to have written a, b- a book or a song on hoity-toity, high and mighty. But this particular man, even though it's a parable, has a lot of sheep, and the, the Pharisees are going to relate to that because shepherds in Israel weren't just keepers of sheep. It, the word shepherd was a designation for someone who was a leader. Uh, we know that uh, Joshua, Numbers 27, is called a shepherd, and yet he was a military general in Israel. Took over from Moses, and Moses was a shepherd as well. It's not called one as such, but Joshua is. When the kings of Israel were wicked, there's a particular episode in 2 Kings chapter 22 where a prophet named Micaiah comes in, and he's talking to King Ahab, who was a wicked king. And he insults Ahab horribly because when he's talking to Ahab, he says, I saw all of Israel in a vision, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. You tell that to a king, you're basically saying, you stink as a king. I saw all Israel, and they were like sheep without a shepherd, Ahab. Because right after this, Ahab looks at, his, at uh, Jehoshaphat and says, did I not tell you he never prophesies anything good about me? Yeah, because you're a terrible king. If people are prophesying bad things about you, it means you're a bad person. So they understood that they were shepherds over Israel. They were the leaders, even though they weren't literal men dealing with sheep. So this particular parable, there's one sheep that's, that's gone astray from a hundred, and the shepherd leaves the 99. Now, the 99 are not the focus here. It's the lost one. And by the way, sheep are the most, um, I'm told, I can't say certain words from the pulpit because I get in trouble, but um, the only word that wraps up what a sheep is, is the word stupid. It's just the only, they are the most stupid animals on the planet. And I've told you before, if you want to see a sheep in action, just go to, go to YouTube and say, just type in sheep, how sheep behave. There's one particular one where, where a shepherd is in this ditch, and he's pulling this sheep out, and the sheep is stuck. It's all wedged in this ditch, not a wide open ditch, but a canal. And he lifts it out, and he pulls it out, and the sheep runs out and runs right back into it. And there's a lot of funny ones. There are sheep that you see the shepherd's there, the shepherd turns their back, and they turn on it, and they charge and knock the shepherd over. Uh, sheep do not know how to find food. They die without a shepherd. They don't know how to find food. They don't know how to find water. Even if they hear a river with their ears, they don't know how. They need a shepherd, as the shepherd, shepherd psalm says, to my cup, what? It, King James English, runneth over. Why is it runneth over? Because a sheep's not going to stick his face into a bucket of water. You have to bring it to the top and let it overflow for the sheep to drink the water. Otherwise, he'll die of thirst. You didn't know that, did you? Well, I had to read about it from a shepherd writing about it. Um, they have no defense mechanism. They're not only stupid, let me just say dim-witted. How about that? That way I don't get in trouble. They're dim-witted. They're a little bit lacking in intelligence. 
And the sad thing is, for you and me, is that we are, are uh, associated with sheep. <laughs> we do the same thing sheep do. We can't defend ourselves spiritually. We are, come on, let's just say it, we are thick-headed and dim-witted. We do the same things, even though we know from the past that people have committed certain sins and fallen into certain holes, we go out and do it anyway. Why do people still get drunk and drive? Haven't you learned a lesson from the past? Why do people still take drugs? Why do people still smoke cigarettes? Don't you know by now? Why do people still love money? Why do people still have sex outside of marriage? It never works. Never. (laughs) But we don't learn. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by the quote-unquote wisest man who ever lived, apparently, if Solomon actually wrote Ecclesiastes. I'm not a big fan of him having written it because it's too wise. He was too dumb at the end of his life. His wisdom left him. He was too dumb at the end of his life to have written Ecclesiastes. I think it's someone mocking him who wrote Ecclesiastes. Now, don't let that go off. Take your extra sketch in your mind and don't even think about that. That's not the point. But Ecclesiastes is written is so that the rest of the following generations, from 1000 B.C. onward, to read Ecclesiastes and say, look, this guy did everything that we want to do in our flesh. It failed. At the end of it all, he says it didn't work. Take my advice, don't try it. What has every generation done since? They've all tried it. Why? Because we're like sheep. So this is a lost sheep, a sheep that goes off, a sheep if it falls over. Do you know if a sheep, before I get to the fall over part, a sheep's wool, if it gets too long, will kill a sheep. Weighs it down. It gets filled with, with uh, uh, mud and, and, and dirt. So it's got to be sheared. If a sheep falls over, the sheep literally has fallen and can't get up. It will die. Sheep must have a shepherd. In this particular episode, the sheep leaves the, 90, leaves the 100, and he's gone by himself. The shepherds, I've got to go get it. Jesus is likened to the shepherd in John chapter 10. He's the good shepherd. By the way, sheep don't look for their shepherd. They don't even know how to find food. The reason I say that is because if you've ever made the mistake of saying, I found God, you didn't. God's not the one that's lost. You are. If you have, quote, unquote, found God, he found you first. You weren't looking for him. Where do you get that, Lance? Well, hold your place there. Put your little rib in there. Go over to the right. Go with me to Romans. Chapter 3. You're going to go from Luke. You're going to go John, Acts, Romans. Chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Here's what the Apostle Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, putting it in what will become the New Testament, here's what he says. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's called what we call total depravity. Total depravity means that we are completely unable. When we are born as a human being, when we are conceived as a human being, we are completely unable to know God on our own. We are lost like the sheep in this parable. So let's get back to the sheep. Sheep's lost. 
needs a shepherd to come find him. Verse 5, the shepherd goes out and finds him. We don't, we're not told how long, but we can hear maybe the shepherd calling out. Sheep had names, by the way. The books that I've read on shepherds, shepherds name their sheep. Sometimes they, they, they give really strange names uh, to their sheep. The, some of the female sheep have, uh, one guy said, I call her Mr. Gad or Mrs. Gadfly. Uh, have to look up Gadfly. Uh, Miss walks about on her own. Mr. I go wherever I want to go whenever I want to go. And that's, that's good for Christians too because there are some people that say, you know what, I like the preaching of the word, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I like what I like. I don't care what the preacher says. I don't care that's in the Bible. God, me, are good. I can do whatever I want. We've negotiated a deal. By the way, if you're one of those people, you, would, you didn't negotiate anything with God. You may have become... Um, settled in your mind that you can do whatever you want, but God's word has said what God's word has said, and there is no negotiation. He goes out and he finds it. When he has found it, verse 5, he lays it on its shoulders. Now a shepherd in Israel, shepherds, uh, Jewish shepherds were not, uh, were not and are not big, strong muscle men, 135, 150 pounds. A sheep's going to be between 50 and 75 pounds. You find the sheep, and he puts it on his shoulders. This is Jesus bearing the load of the lost sinner that he's gone out to find. Again, this is not a straying Christian. This is a sheep that has gone out from the 99. By the way, the 99 in this context are the scribes and Pharisees in verses 1 and 2. That's who they are. Jesus has gone out from the scribes and Pharisees because they don't believe they need salvation. They don't think that they're needing Jesus as their Messiah. They're good. That's why Jesus is talking in all the context up to this. It's difficult to get into heaven. The way is narrow. You must deny yourself, take up your cross daily. You must hate your own family in comparison to the love you have for me. It's not because you're Jewish that you get to go to heaven or be a part of God's kingdom. It's difficult, Jesus is saying. The scribes and the Pharisees says, we're in. We're Jewish, we're in. They're going to be just like that boy. When the prodigal son gets back, and we look at this next week, who says, I didn't do anything wrong. The prodigal son, the son went off and became a, he was a profligate. He comes back and repents. That's where the joy is. The other son is going, I didn't do anything wrong ever. And you wouldn't give me a feast with my own friends, just for, with a young goat. No, because you're the Pharisees, son. That's who you are. You're the 99. I called you to repentance, Jesus is telling the Pharisees. You said no, I'm going to get the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and all the rest of the sinners. I'm leaving you, and I'm going to get them. That's what this is all about. Don't miss that. The 99 have been left because they don't know that Romans passage I just said. Oh, they knew it, but they didn't believe it. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is not one who is righteous. No, not one. Look over at Luke 19, verse 10. This is uh, in the context of, uh, of Zacchaeus. Keeping in mind that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. In Luke 19, 10, just one verse. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. But isn't everyone lost? Aren't we all lost? Okay, go back to 15 and then go back to the left to Luke chapter 5. Just reviewing this. 
Luke chapter 5, verse 27, this is the calling of Levi, whom we know as Matthew. He was a tax collector. Jesus went up to his tax booth and said, follow me. Didn't ask him a series of questions, just said, follow me. The worst of the worst is now following Jesus. Verse 28 says he left everything behind. Then he gave a big reception in chapter 5, verse 29, with all of his tax collector friends to celebrate what Jesus had done for him. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling. They're always grumbling. Began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? They're talking to the disciples because they were too cowardly to address Jesus. But Jesus answers them. Jesus answered them and said, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to seek and save that which was lost. I didn't come to call the well, but are there any that are well? Are there? I mean, from Romans, from our own experience, no one is righteous, no not one, no one who does good, no not one, totally depraved. So why would Jesus say this? He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners to repentance. Is he telling the Pharisees, you guys are good? You're righteous, good guys. I didn't come to call you. I'm dealing with the tax collectors over here, guys, because I need to bring them into the fold. That's not what he's saying at all. They have rejected him in that context and in our context in chapter 15. Jesus has hence hence left the 99 who think they need no salvation. They think they're well. And Jesus is saying, you ain't well, and because you don't know it, there's nothing I can do about it. I would say the same thing to you. Unless you know you're a sinner, which is why I call you sinners all the time, because it's true, right? Myself as well. Unless you know you're a sinner in need of God's grace, you won't come back here. You won't want to hear the gospel. I don't want to go to a church where the guy calls me a sinner. I want you to tell me how good I am. Hey, those churches are a dime a dozen out there. Go to Joel's church. He'll tell you how good you are. Reach for the sky. And he's a lot better looking than me too. Go hear all you want at those ridiculous, false teaching churches. We're going to tell you the truth here. I mean, I have to study it. I have to come to it myself, so I'm just going to share my my angst with you. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But I love thinking about the sinner that I am, not because I'm proud of it, but because I can't believe God, when he found me, took this wretched sinner and put me on his shoulders and bore the weight of my entire life. Up on a cross, actually. That's what this shepherd does when he found it. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I found the lost sheep. I found God rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I love that. About the character of God, there's rejoicing. He didn't just save it, come back in, put it back to the flock, look at it. Dumb sheep. Strange sheep. None of you others better go astray. No, that's not God. He goes out on his search for the lost. Finds them. Seeking them. Calling to them. Because they're lost. He's not. Finds them. Rescues them. Rejoices over them. Isn't that awesome? You come to know Christ, it's not just another day in the life of the eternal God. There is rejoicing. Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you, 
that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, that's just a sarcastic, ironic statement. Because Jesus knows, as do we, there are no righteous persons who need no repentance. We're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. If anyone needed to repent, it's them. But they don't think they need a doctor. Jesus has met them in other contexts, same way. So the question is, where are you? Did you grow up in a certain denomination and now you find yourself in this Bible church and you're going, yeah, I grew up Baptist and it was better than this. I grew up in a Methodist church. Maybe you grew up in the High Anglican church. Everyone wore robes and, and it was all formal and everything and there's stained glass windows and you're looking around here going, what is this? You're a Pharisee. Who are these people? Are you a hoity-toity person who looks down? What if someone came into our audience and they were dirty or they stunk? You gonna let them sit by themselves? What about someone you know as a really bad person? You see them out on the baseball field and you're going, ooh, don't go near them. We're sitting on this side. I would love to think that a person like that could come in here and be loved because you ain't no better and neither am I. If they come in and they have no money and they stink, let them. Buy them lunch. Joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents. Jesus has been calling people to repent all along. Back in 13, verses, verse 3 and verse 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, Sadd Sadducees, the scribes. You need to repent. Repent. He knows they need repentance. And there's great rejoicing over it. Jesus says in Matthew 9.36, he looks at Israel and he said, that they were like sheep which have no shepherd. The same thing that was true with Israel was true with Israel in Jesus' day. Israel in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. He looked out over a group of people who were being led by conservative, law-abiding rabbis. And he looked at him and he thought, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're there. They teach. They throw their laws out. But they are hypocrites to the nth degree. Verse 8, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, by the way, silver coins here is drachma. It would be, be equivalent to a day's wage, a drachma, a day's wage. So you work for a day, you get this amount of money. She has ten of them. Ten drachmas, ten silver coins. If she loses one coin, back here in the first parable is one one-hundredth of a man's flock. It was still so important to him that he went and got him. What we would consider, at least what the, the, the uh, Pharisees considered low lives. Jesus went and got one one hundredth. A, sh a shepherd could go, you know what? Eh, we don't need that sheep. They go stray all the time. Don't need them. Got 99 more. Nope. No one falls outside of the compassion of our Lord God, Jesus Christ. Amen? Not even you did. Not even you. Not even me. Here it's going to be one-tenth of, a, of a, someone's wealth, what they own. She loses a coin. Now it would be easy to lose a coin back in those days. Um... Houses weren't like our houses. They didn't have, you know, window installers, the beautiful windows that uh, some folks in our, our church uh, promote and, and sell that are great, beautiful windows. Why, they brighten our home. And those who maybe in our church, they, they give us a nice tile floor or whatever it is, hardwood floor, whatever it is that you like, it can be done. Light, floors, 
paint, whatever it might be. Back in those days, you had a house with no windows. The door, the door was made of, the floor was made of dirt. And the, if you didn't like the dirt, you put straw all over it. So there's straw all over your, imagine that, ladies, coming into your house, a house full of straw. So you've got coins. These coins are valuable to this woman. Her husband is not spoken of, so we assume she's a peasant. She's got 10 coins. She's got what's left. Whatever's going to sustain her, one of them's lost. It's not falling on a dirt floor. You could probably find that. It's underneath the straw. And there's no light coming in. You've got to walk around with a torch. You and I get a high-powered flashlight. We search around. Up oh, there it is. She's taking 10% of her income that she's lost, and she's going around with a torch looking under all the straw, looking for the coin. The coin's here. The coins know they're lost. The sheep know they're lost. They're different from a sheep and a coin, but neither one can do anything about their lostness. They must be found. She loses the coin. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? The obvious answer is yes, she does. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Now, that's going to be a fun party, don't you think? Why are we going over there, dear? Uh, she lost a few quarters. She found one. We're going to go have dinner. Now, that's a boring society. That's a society that needs some entertainment. And, and it probably was. We're going to celebrate her finding this lost coin. She calls her neighbors, rejoice with me, because it matters to her. I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, verse 10, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels. I know it doesn't say that the angels are jumping with joy. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God because where God is, these angels are. God is rejoicing. We know that from verse 7. God is rejoicing. God is rejoicing here. And those in his presence, these angels, are also rejoicing, we believe, by, by extension, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents. One measly, unimportant person who comes to know Jesus Christ, there is rejoicing in heaven. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that? You know, the Bible teaches that everyone that will be saved, God has already chosen to be saved. At some point along the way, God will Go find them and they will be saved. You figure, well, what's the point? I don't need to evangelize. If God's got it all done, number one, you evangelize because God commanded it. Is that good enough? Number two, you are missing out on an amazing blessing to not evangelize because God is bringing you in to the party. Here, I've already done this. I'm bringing you in, Lance, to, to bring this person to salvation that I've already ordained for them. I'm going to give them eternal life and I'm going to bless you, you wretched sinner that I've already found for doing that. What fool would not want to take part in that? The grace of God is so awesome. That's the only thing that we should use that word for. I mean, I like peanut butter and I like pizza. And when I'm hungry, those are awesome. But that doesn't compare with the awesome nature of the salvation of God, the compassion with which he has to search for his lost if everyone was going to come to faith in Christ, he wouldn't leave the 99. But everyone is not chosen. Everyone is not elect. 
God's people whom he knew before the foundation of the earth. He called to him. He will call to them and bring them to salvation. That's God's grace. If he didn't, no one would be saved. Why? Because there is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. We are depraved and unable to come to know Christ. As Ephesians 2 says, we are born dead. Spiritually speaking, we are born dead. And it is God who makes us alive. Amen? That's Ephesians 2, 1 to 6. That's why Paul says, for it is by grace you are saved. This is not of your doing. It is through faith in Christ. It's a gift. It is unto good works. Good works don't get it for you. Good works are the result of what it is. Why do we love God? 1 John 4, 19. Because he first loved us. As if our love means anything. Our love is so impure and imperfect. The only reason we love God is because he loved us first. He sought us. He bought us. He came to get us. He put us on his shoulders. He bore our sin on his shoulders. He saved us. The 99 are those who are going, I don't need him. I'm good. They're the ones that go, I don't need Jesus to choose me. I can choose him. No, you can't. The only way that you pursued God was because he had already pursued and found you. Some people say, I'm on a search for God. I've heard people say that. You've heard people say that. I'm searching for God. Okay. If you really are, if, and they tell you that, then you know that God is Jesus, correct? Oh, I didn't know that. Let me tell you that God is Jesus. If they receive Jesus, because you tell them he is God, then yes, God put them on their search. They thought they were searching for him, but God regenerated their hearts to search for him. But most people are searching for a God. It is any God but what's in the Bible. Any God except the one that created the heavens and the earth. A God of their own making. They're not on a search for God. They're on a search for their own peace. They're striving to find in their own God, a God of their own making, a God that they choose. And they do. They choose just the right God who gives them just what they want. Problem is, in the end, that God doesn't exist. There is only one God his name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is that God. That God chose us before the foundation of the world. That means before Genesis 1, before the world was ever created, God knew his own. Knew us. Some say, well, he knew that we would receive him. So I guess God gives credit to people who aren't in existence for a deed they can't do so that they can be born and he can reward them for what they did. I call that heresy. Because it is. It's made up. God knew intimately those who were his own. And he chose them before the world was created. And he goes and gets them when they're born. We're born to a mother and then we're reborn in Christ. And we're reborn in Christ because God came and got us. He rescued us. Folks, that is why we worship if you worship because you did something, then you're reserving some of your worship for you. That's why we worship, folks. We worship because God did it all. God did it all. We did nothing. We're lost sheep. We're stupid. 
We're going to fall over and, and, and not get up. We're going to die in our sin. We're stuck in a canal. We'll never get out unless a, a shepherd releases us. And we're going to go right back to it. And he's going to get us out again. We're lost coins sitting under, under straw. We can't cry out, I'm lost, find me. We don't know. As maybe some of you here are today, you don't know you're lost. But I'm telling you, you're lost because you're a sinner. We're all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not any good. You think you're a good person and you might be a good citizen. And you might be a nice person that we want to be around. But you're not good enough to be with God in heaven. You're not. None of us are. There is no one who does good. No, not one. No one who is righteous. No, not one. That's why we are, when we come to faith in Christ, we have been declared righteous by God. God doesn't look at any of us and go, okay, you've reached righteousness. No, he just takes his wand and says, declared righteous. Am I righteous? No, I've been declared such. I'm still not. Not in and of myself. But righteous. Because of God's doing, not yours. It's called grace. Those that are lost understand that they're lost. And when you understand that you're lost, you already know that God has rescued you. Just the realization that I'm lost means that God has given you that realization because you're spiritually dead. We're born that way. We're born spiritually dead. We don't know we're lost. We think we're good people. We think we're, we're great business people. We accomplish a lot with our education or our business. We're pretty good people. Lord, look at me. I'm better than Joe Schmo over there. No, you're not. The grace of God causes us to know that we're lost. Maybe you've come to a point in your life, all your dreams, they've come to nothing. You didn't, you've accomplished nothing. A shattered Maybe you thought that getting married was the end all. And you're married and that didn't make you happy either. Having a lot of money, you thought that was, that was the end all. You made a lot of money. It's just empty inside. Maybe you wanted a bunch of children. You had a bunch of children. And you just couldn't have enough. because It's just still empty inside. You're at the end of your rope. Lord, it's just not the way I imagined it. Or maybe you accomplished all of those things. Maybe you thought, I'm going to have all that money. You, you, didn't, just, you didn't have the, the, the death of your dreams. Your dreams all came true, and you're still empty. That's God bringing you to the point of realizing, I'm lost, Lord. I'm lost. I thought that all these things would make me happy. I was just like the scribes and the Pharisees. If I looked good, if I had this stuff, if I had all that, and if I could do that, I'd be great. I was reading a story this morning on our beloved Johnny Manziel. It's a story on Fox about how Johnny, Johnny is saying, by the time I got what I wanted, he said, I was so empty inside that I had all this money and I, had, and I was playing quarterback for the Cleveland Browns and, and everything was supposed to be right. He said, and I was so lost, so empty. I don't know that he came to know Jesus. I hope he does. That's when you know you're lost. So maybe that's you today. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe you're still trying to pursue those things and you're saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to get to where I want to be and then I'll figure out if I'm lost. Okay. Be my guest. I can't stop you, but I can warn you 
that you'll not find it in anything. You'll only find it in one. You're going to find it on the back of Jesus when you recognize he's carrying you. You're lost, he found you, and he's carrying you back. And you'll rejoice knowing that there's rejoicing going on in heaven over you, you wicked sinner whom God has brought to his fold. You filthy tax collector and prostitute that Jesus hobnobbed with to save. I've never ripped anyone off out of money like a tax collector. I've never been anything like a a prostitute, not in flesh, but right here, every day. The sin that twirls in this mind is atrocious. I am as wicked as anyone on this planet. You ever wonder, if, what if God put, a, put one of those tickers on your mind that just said, thinking about this right now, thinking about this, thought about that, wants to do this to you, smiling at you but wants to kill you, smiling at you, gripping your hand, really wants you to just go away, just ticking it. No, we hide that. Thankfully, God allows us to do that. In spite of it, our God's grace, he went on a search for me, for you. If you are lost and you don't know you're lost, I'm telling you, if you don't profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, you're lost. If you think you can do it on your own, keep on trying. You're all going to die. We are all going to meet our end someday. Maybe today, it may, you may have 50 plus years left, but you are going to die. And you will meet your maker. Are you going to be the one knocking on the door going, Lord, Lord, I knew your name. I went to church. My mom prayed for me. Because if you do that, you're going to hear the voice from behind the door going, depart from me. I don't know you. You doers of wickedness, you who do whatever you want to do, go away from me. Or will you be on the other side of the door? Because you knew you were a sinner. You knew that you were found by Jesus. You gave all glory to him, none to you for choosing him. All glory to him. He gets it all or he gets nothing. You reserve 1% for yourself, you're not in. Surrender all to God. Because we were the lost. He was the founder. He He came to find. He did. He put us on his shoulder. He rejoiced. Part two of this is next week in the prodigal son. And we'll see what the Pharisees do when they figure this out. It ain't pretty. Let's pray. Lord, as we leave here today, those of us who know that we were found and saved by our Lord Jesus, may we rejoice all the more, having been reminded of what you did long before we were ever born, having brought us to your own, brought us back into the fold, brought us into the fold for the first time, May we rejoice in that. May we revel in that moment in time where you rejoiced over us being found. Where the angels had a worship service with the Lord God Almighty over our salvation. But I pray also for those in here today who have not, will not profess faith. ways that only you can do, Lord. Show them they're lost. And 
the end of their proverbial rope, there will be empty. Save them as only you do. Send us, Lord, as those who carry your word. Search for the lost through us, through the message of salvation. Make us bold, strong, courageous evangelists, taking your message to the lost. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being included in your overall plan and being included in the salvation of another. You just keep giving grace upon grace, gift upon gift to those of us who deserve nothing. May it prompt us to worship like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you, my friends, as you go announce that good news. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 